everyone. Welcome back to the Product Experience Podcast. This is the weekly podcast from Mind the Product, bringing you great advice from some of the most inspiring product people in the whole wide world. Ooh, that's right. And today is no exception. Lily, what's the biggest backlog you've ever had? Hmm. I reckon I've had to wrangle a backlog of a few hundred items at some point in my day. I don't think it was very pretty. I think I recovered by binge watching TV to try and get Jira ticket numbers out of my head. <laughs> well, big backlogs will be no more with our next guest. She's got tips on how to say no to rubbish feature requests. Gabrielle Buffram is a product management manager, try saying that three times fast, at Pivotal Labs and also a trainer with Mind the Product. Gabrielle has a framework that we love that will make all your lives easier. So we just had to get her on the podcast to share more about it. Okay, Randy, let's try an experiment. Can we do a promo in under 20 seconds? Okay, let's try. The product experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we improve our practice. Aside from conferences in London, San Francisco, Singapore, Hamburg, and Manchester, there's also free product tanks in more than 185 cities, and there's probably one near you. Find out about them on mindtheproduct.com, where you can also catch up on past episodes, videos from the conferences, read great articles, and learn about the training that we do. Hey, Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know you, who hasn't seen your talks already, can you give us a little bit of background? How did you get into product and how did you get to uh, Pivotal, where you are today? Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Randy. So great to be here. I'm very excited for this. Um, so I joked that I got into product management since I was very little and I just didn't know I could get paid to do it, um, which is <laughs> awesome. Um, but I went into product right after school. I initially thought I wanted to go to law school or join the UN. And I really fell in love with technology and building products that could help people. So that's how I got into product management. And in terms of Pivotal, um, it's been kind of a world journey. I joined the Paris office when it was just starting. Then I worked in Singapore, um, went back to Paris, and now I work in a headquarters in San Francisco. And what do you do? What's your day job there? Yeah, so I'm a manager of product management. So I manage other PMs, which is awesome. PMs are so organized and like <laughs> awesome humans to manage, which is great. Um, and I also manage um, a big product for us called Operations Manager. So we wanted to chat to you today because you did a great talk at Turing Fest on the importance of saying no. Um, it would be great to kind of find out where the inspiration for that talk came from and, and sort of why you decided to cover it as a topic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of talks and um, things that I write for me come either from moments of extreme joy or of extreme pain. And I think I potentially share that with a lot of people that the talks are writing as well. Um, so I inherited a really important product for us recently, um, recently-ish. And it was kind of a monster product. There was so much going on. It was very big in terms of like our revenue driving. Um, so really, really important product. But at the same time, um, there was just so much in the product. And I was like, wow, should this all be here? Like, are we doing the right thing? Are we building something that is so big that we can't maintain potentially? Um, so I joke that if you have a monster product, uh, you will know it because it's very, very clear uh, when you inherit one or when you unfortunately end up building one yourself. 
So the inspiration was kind of like from an experience that I had and now the opportunity to hopefully um, share some wisdom so that people can start either taming their monsters or stop building them um, in general. What made you realize it was a monster? Um, a lot of the things that I really love about my job, like prioritizing problems and driving outcomes, um, those were all kind of like deprioritized because um, there was so much of what I like to joke as like monster taming going on. So I was answering support calls. Um, I was answering all sorts of requests from different teams for like things we needed to do because we had so many dependencies on them. So um, really felt like a really, really big product that was very important and is very important today, but that had some interesting um, choices made in the past in terms <laughs> of its architecture. So how did you come to the conclusion that you needed to start saying no more? And how did you initially go about doing that? Yeah, um, I got to the conclusion, well, the first piece was um, we have limited resources. So in terms of prioritizing what's really important, um, I get so many requests every day. So we get maybe five or eight a week um, for new features or new things that we can improve. And those are only feature requests. There are other bugs that come in and there are other initiatives that we're trying to drive. So um, it really was a matter of like reaching a point where I felt like I could make a difference and where we were actually solving for people's outcomes. Um, so that was kind of when I decided I needed to start saying more no, and I needed to start understanding um, why we were building what we were building and kind of like what it was meant to drive. And how I started to go about it, well, in the beginning, it was really hard because we had um, no real feature request process. So we would get feature requests everywhere. Like people would find me in the hallway and like give me a post-it or they would like <laughs> at me and be like, hey, we also want this thing. Or I would be at lunch with someone and they'd be like, by the way, there's this other thing we want or Slack or email or different portals across the org. So there were a lot of ways people could reach me, uh, but not a lot of ways in a standardized way that actually worked for us um, and worked for them. So a lot of those requests either went unheard um, and unanswered, or we would do them without really considering the grand scheme of what our product was supposed to do and the things that we wanted to focus on and the things we didn't want to. And you've written a really good template of how to encourage people to give you really good feature requests, um, which I love, um, <laughs> by the way. But I've got to ask, is, yeah. is the reason why it kind of worked for you because you were in an organization where you could get the people who were giving you feature requests to give you a lot more information around the feature rather than just the kind of feature request itself? Um, because I can imagine in my situation, giving that template to, to someone who had an idea and then just going, oh, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not going to fill that out. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a really good question. I, I think I am really fortunate to work for an organization where we do have this information and we have this kind of like culture of seeking what's right and what's true. Um, but I wouldn't attribute it only to the organization itself. I think that um, the template forces people to think in a different way. So a lot of my role went in the beginning in implementing the template was actually to help people figure out uh, 
is there a problem that you're trying to solve? If there is, what is it? Then they would go on and like figure that out. And then they'd come back and they'd be like, oh, I think it reaches these many people. And I'm like, oh, have you thought of that? Have you thought of this other thing? So in the beginning, it was a lot of kind of hands-on work um, with people, but those people weren't. And now they do it all by themselves, which is pretty amazing. I also feel like People love giving ideas about products and ideas are great. Like when I started in product, I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like people are going to tell me what the product actually needs and what the users need. And like, that's just great. It's just going to help me do my job. Uh, but I felt like the more that I got into product management and that I started managing different products, like the more it was proven that um, those ideas without really a lot of reasoning behind it or without clear problem articulation um, are just ideas. And ideas are easy to have, but really hard to implement. So in terms of that, I feel pretty comfortable giving people quite a bit of homework, I call, um, before they can actually make an impact in our product. And we haven't really received a lot of pushback, which is nice. Let's talk a little bit about what that homework is. So what goes into the framework for submission? What, what information do you need to make a good request? Yeah, so the first thing um, and the most important thing for me is they need to describe the problem that the persona that we serve has. So um, that's kind of like the first barrier, right? So if there are no problems being solved by this request, it immediately eliminates the idea, um, which is great because we want to build products that solve problems for people. If it doesn't solve a problem, they won't use the product. Uh, I'm not naive to think that they just like love us so much that they will continue to use. <laughs> we want to make sure that we're solving a problem. Um, we also ask for the reach. So we are impacting this persona. We're solving this problem. Like how many people can we actually help by doing this? And this will go into our prioritization framework. We ask them for customer impact and we give them really specific um, kind of sub themes in customer impact so that they can pick. Um, we then ask for business impact and those tie to our business goals. So if something doesn't really meet any of our business goals, um, it becomes more of a conversation of if we need to prioritize it or not, and if we need to kind of review our strategy in terms of the product and the division itself. Um, we also ask for evidence. It's like, how do you know this? Like, who did you talk to? And we get interesting things. We get like recordings, we get Slack threads, we get um, emails. So we really can follow on the conversation and see kind of like how this request came about. And then we ask them, how urgent is it? Um, is it like something that they need right now? Or is it something that can wait a little longer? And one of my favorite questions that we ask in the template is, what is the cost of not doing this? Mm -hmm. So is there a way around it today? How are people solving this problem? And will us not solving it cause a lot of damage or just a little damage? And then we kind of evaluate um, based on that. In practical terms, how do people fill this template in? Do they? Do you have it as a Google form or some other method? Yeah, so we had it as a Google form and that was kind of our V1 iteration. I was like, this is super cheap. I can just make a Google form and send it to people. Uh, that caused a few pain points. So the first pain point was that only our team was allowed to see what was in the Google form. 
and kind of like the results of that. So it didn't really create a very transparent and collaborative environment, um, which was a shame because we wanted to make sure that people knew um, what we were doing, what we were not doing, and the reasoning behind these things. So we actually moved away from the Google form, and now we use our road mapping tool, um, AHA, as a way to um, collect this information and also display it to people. So we have a section there called ideas and people submit an idea. Um, our idea template is exactly the one that is in the blog post and people then can um, submit it and they can see if we're going to do it. If we're not going to do it, they get notified. More people can collaborate on the idea, which is really great. So it reached both the pain point of like, we need one system to prioritize these so that we actually can manage them so that they can be effective for the team and so that we can respond to people and people need to know what we're going to do and what we won't do. Just to go back over it. So in your, for a feature request, you want them to tell us what the customer reach is, what the customer impact is, the mm -hmm. business impact, the opportunity cost and the evidence that they have of it. How yeah. does that, that's somebody's opinion. How do you then use that? for prioritization. Yeah, totally. So um, this doesn't, it's not like pixie dust magic, right? It's not like you just get this and then the world is done and like all of your work as a PM is done. Uh, but this gives you a good base um, of what other people are doing and what they're thinking. So normally my process is I review these requests twice a week and I spend about an hour or two hours every single time reviewing these and figuring out what the right things are. Um, given our team gets a lot of requests because we're a pretty central product, um, but I think that that's normal for a lot of teams that are in this situation. So I get the request and then I go do my own investigation, right? I go read those Slack threads, I go figure out like what happened, I go listen to the recordings, and I kind of understand if the pain point that was extracted is really the pain point that I'm hearing. And after that, I plot it out in our prioritization framework, which is um, another kind of core process that my team has adopted in terms of making decisions. And what's the difference between what's in the feature request and what's in the prioritization framework? Yeah, so they're actually very similar, which is amazing. <laughs> um, and that's very much by design because I think it's really hard to just have so many different data points if you're not using them in a very efficient way. So for us, the prioritization framework has all the different categories that the feature request form has and one additional one that is called effort. And it's product, design, and engineering effort. We very deliberately at, don't ask people to um, say how much effort it's going to take because they are not on the team and they don't know normally how much engineering product or design effort it will take. But we normally then go and we estimate how much effort it is to solve for each of these things. And this gives us the result of how important it is versus how hard it is to, to actually make it happen. So I'm sorry, you said effort is the one additional one, but you also, I think, have a difference in the way you phrase something for the requester and something for the team. The requester mm -hmm. has to give evidence. You have to give confidence. What's the difference yes. between those? Yeah, so the requester gives us evidence. 
based on the evidence that they give us, we then assess if we are confident or not um, that this is the right thing to do. So they might give us a Slack thread and it might be a conversation and people might be like, oh yeah, this would be a great idea. And there's no problem there. So I'm like, oh, I'm like 0% confidence that there is actually a problem there to be solved. Um, so that has happened in the past. Or just ideas that people either skip the problem section or they're like, it would be great if you could just improve the UI. And I'm like, well, that's not really a problem. So like, we're not going to do it. Um, and we're very explicit about like why we do some things and why we don't do other things. Yeah. So I think that's a great differentiation, Randy, of like evidence versus confidence. And confidence also includes talking to real customers. So if something is really big and could be like a lot of work for our team, um, we will normally, additionally from the conversations that we're already had, um, reach out to customers ourselves and actually make sure that by doing the proposed solution, we are actually solving the problem. So when you have this framework in place, mm -hmm. do you even need to say no? Or is it just really obvious then what you're going to work on? Um, I think frameworks are great for a few different things, right? So they're great for the team to have a very clear placeholder for important conversations that need to happen. Um, they're also great for us to evaluate ideas in a very rational way. I think it's very easy for us product managers, designers, engineers to fall in love with certain ideas and to really want them to play out and to happen. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes the ideas I've fallen in love with are not that great. <laughs> they don't solve that big of problems compared to other ideas um, that were proposed. So I think it really gives ideas and insights an equal playing field, which is for me, kind of like the biggest takeaway from having a framework. And also other teams in the organization know exactly how we prioritize. So whenever they come to talk to me about anything, they're like, hey, here's the reach, here's this thing, here's this other thing, like, uh, just so you know, so that you can put it in your thing. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, so they, they start kind of like doing your work for you um, if they really want something to get in or if they wanna make sure that they're conveying um, the importance of what they're doing. Do they ever try and cheat the process? Um, we haven't. Thankfully, we have people that also want to solve real problems for customers. So I feel like <laughs> that's a baseline, right? Um, otherwise, I don't. I don't think we've had anyone try to cheat. <laughs> Not that you found out yet. Not that I found out yet. I can get back to you if that. <laughs> yeah. But this makes it sound almost like science. You add up all these numbers or multiply the numbers, you divide them by effort or confidence and outcomes a prioritization number and you have to do it that way, right? It's never going to be that simple. That is true. And I think where it becomes really hard is in the finding the numbers themselves. So there are a few numbers there that are pretty easy, like reach, pretty easy. You can easily count like how many people can leverage this. You know how many users you have, you know how many users use certain features, or at least you can estimate a percentage, right? So that would be a number that's normally pretty easy. Um, where it gets really hard is business impact, customer impact, cost of not doing. Like that's where the rubber hits the road. And that's where I think it's way more art than science. And it's all about the conversations that you have with the team and figuring out how you actually assess impact and how you assess opportunity cost. So in theory, it's very easy. In practice, pretty hard, I would say. 
just like most things. When you read it in a book, you're like, oh, this is awesome. Like, I'll just do this and it's gonna be so easy. Um, but in reality, it becomes more complicated than that. So is the objective of all this to get a number or to have a really good conversation? The objective of this formula is absolutely not to get a number. <laughs> <laughs> it's potentially one of the first formulas that it's like, your goal here is to not get the number. Um, you will get a number eventually. And it might give you some insight into what you should build or what you should not build. But the objective is to have a really good conversation and to make sure that you are having um, the different disciplines represent themselves, um, both in terms of effort, also in terms of impact, um, in terms of like the cost of not doing this, the confidence level, um, and making sure that you're making this decision as a team. I think that's like what has been really, really great for us about this process. And have you had other teams and other organizations take this same method and use it within their product management process? Yeah, yeah, I have. So I this kind of like scaled itself a little bit. We we started talking about it during my team and then um, we had some product lunches and I mentioned it to some PMs. Oh yeah, I'm like developing this new prioritization process. And I think PMs are always excited about like new things that they can try out. Uh, so quite a few of them actually reached out to me and a lot of people were very, very um, reluctant, I think might be the word, or skeptical, potentially skeptical is better, <laughs> um, of what is this magical formula that you can just plug everything in. And I remember starting a few sessions where I was facilitating this process and people were like, I don't think this is going to work. And I hate it already. And I was like, wow, okay. Like <laughs> we have a lot of trust here as a team, right? Like to be able to say this stuff this is great. Um, and they really changed their minds towards the end because they realized that it wasn't about finding the perfect number. It was about bringing up things that would not come up naturally um, and evaluating ideas equally, um, which I think is where it gets really hard because if I'm on a customer call and I receive a request, I was the one that was there. I heard the pain from the user, right? If someone else wasn't there, like how do we make sure that this idea is evaluated fairly compared to other ideas? So how do you deal with uh, stakeholders who have conflicting goals? Yes, everyone wants to solve problems for people, but they want to solve the problems that help their direct customers, that solve their own problems quickly. Uh, and you've got two different people who are asking for something. And, hey, it's A or B. Both are going to solve problems for people. Both are going to have an impact, but you can't do both at once. How do you let somebody down gently, and how do you make that decision? Yeah, I think that's kind of where, where it becomes really helpful, right? And um, in my talk, I talked about the importance of having really clear business goals. And I'll reiterate and say the importance of having really clear business goals that are ranked and prioritized, right? Every product manager loves prioritized things. I love prioritized goals. Like what is the thing that is the most important for us versus something else that is important? And it would be great if we could do everything. And if we move one metric up, the other one goes up too. But normally if we move something up, something goes down and we need to be okay with that decision. Um, so normally the prioritization framework does a lot of the legwork for me because it gives me a very clear reason on why I'm saying no to someone. I felt like a lot about saying, like no one likes saying no to people. It, it like kind of sucks, right? <laughs> you're like, oh, like we're not gonna do your thing or like your request is not that important. Um, and 
we can get super philosophical here. Like it's hard to say no in general in life. And it's even harder when our job is to communicate and to be collaborative and to work with other people and to lead without authority, right? Like those are all really hard things in general. They're even harder if you're saying no to someone that wants something from you. But what I found in my experience is that when you have very clear reasons on why you're doing something versus not, and you can explain those to people and empathize with them, um, saying no becomes much easier. As part of that, you've made a, a distinction between vision and strategy that I hadn't seen before. Can mm -hmm. you explain that? Yeah, totally. Um, so I, I see those conflated a lot. And that's why I wanted to really separate them. So for me, vision is sexy. It's like exciting. It's what you need to be wanting to have in order to go to work every day. It's like what makes people get up in the morning and be like, yeah, I'm going to solve a problem, right? Like Pivotal's vision is we want to change the way the world builds software. That's huge, right? It doesn't really tell us how to get there. So vision really sets kind of that North Star of where we want every single team to go. Strategy is the messy, non-linear piece uh, that comes in on how you actually make that vision work. And strategy includes, for me, setting business goals that are clear, specific, uh, like just making revenue. It's not a clear goal. Um, and that also have a time frame and that everyone in the organization is aware of. Um, it involves having OKRs and jobs should be done for teams so that they know how they're contributing towards that broader goal and then towards the vision. And then it also involves teams having a consistent way to prioritize. Because for me, strategy would be flawed if one team is prioritizing in a completely different way than another team and is prioritizing a completely different way than another team. So having kind of this um, clear conversation and coherent explanation of why we're doing certain things and why we're not doing other things, uh, for me, is a core part of being strategic and strategy and product in general. And with this prioritization framework, do you have um, an, an outcome for each request that you get, which is either not right now um, or just never? Um, or, or yes, we're going to do this. Um, or, or is it a case of you, you just kind of say yes to the ones that you are actually going to do? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think um, this is where it, people need to kind of figure out what works for them. Um, I definitely have what works for me and my context. But I think um, that's kind of like the beauty of the framework as well. It's like everyone needs to kind of make it your own. And mm -hmm. by making it your own, I think it will force you to have a lot of really hard conversations about what matters and what doesn't matter. So for that alone, I think it's like a wonderful exercise to do with the team. Um, so for us, we have three different statuses for, for ideas. So one is won't implement. So that's a no immediately. And we actually have a graph of how many requests we get and how many things we do and don't do. Um, which I think also helps with setting expectations. More than 60% of requests we don't address at all. Um, and whenever we say won't implement, we explain why we're not implementing. Like we say something like, actually the cost of not doing, there's no cost to not doing this. Like it seems like there's a clear workaround or there's a clear other feature that also does this. Um, therefore it's not that important or like you're only reaching one customer. So we are not gonna prioritize this right now. Um, so those are like 
things that we do whenever we say we won't implement something, then we have a middle state that we call future consideration. And here is like, here are areas that we're not 100% sure about. So it might be like engineering questions. It might be like, this might depend on other teams. And it's not only our say um, in whether we're going to do it or not. Um, but we always kind of keep a timeline and we keep it in future consideration for max two weeks. And then we make a decision. Otherwise, everything can be future consideration. And then you created a whole new problem for yourself by like trying to solve the problem that you had in the past, <laughs> uh, which is not helpful. Um, and then the other stuff is like, we're actually going to do it. And we, when we decide to do it, we have a story in the backlog that relates to this or an epic. And then those are all tied into the idea itself so that people can track how we're doing and where in our roadmap this falls. Have you found that the process doesn't work in um, any particular situation or with any sort of different kind of team? I think so far it has been working pretty well, which is great. Um, I think it's a lot about kind of being very the diligent on the process itself. So people making sure that you're following it, making sure that you're actually checking in in the requests and answering people, um, having constant prioritization conversations. Another big differentiation from this process from other ones that I've seen in the past is that it forces you to prioritize stuff every single week. Um, while some teams are used to prioritizing things once every three months or once every four months. So it really pushes the bar in terms of agile prioritization. So I think that's another kind of like expectation setting that needs to be have in terms of the team and in terms of the input that we're going to need, both from design and engineering, not only product. If there was a product manager listening to this and they were like, this sounds awesome, I want to try it out. How yeah. would you recommend that they get started? Because... I can imagine a PM kind of picking this up and thinking, right, well, I'm just going to fill out all of these feature requests in the structure or the template that you have myself first. But it feels like in order to get the benefit of this framework, it's better to push that initial completion of the template to the people who are providing you with the feature requests. Is that yeah, yeah, that that's right, for sure. Um, I think one thing to be very aware of and mindful in terms of the feature request template is that you're asking people that are not product managers mm -hmm. to kind of be a product manager. So you need to give them as many tools as you can in order for them to be able to make good decisions or the decisions that are right. So even like customer impact, we have an explanation on my template of what customer impact is and how they should fill it out. We have buckets that they say if this fits in or not, because I don't expect someone in a completely different role to be able to articulate what customer impact is. Um, so I think the more work you do up front, the higher success there is with the template. And I think just like anything we do in product, like your MVP will not be great. <laughs> Our MVP had flaws. It had uh, problems with it not being transparent. Um, people were unhappy because they didn't really know how to fill it out. And we had to kind of work through all the tweaks. And we got to where we got to today, which is awesome. But I'd say to your point, like, it's really important to try to fill it out as much as possible. So the areas that I would say um, PMs should focus the most on are defining what customer impact means, what business impact means, and what the cost of not doing is. 
So I would say those are cross-functional conversations between engineering, product, design, and their directors to make sure that everyone is aligned on what those are. So I love that we're talking to you today, Gabrielle, because uh, last week we had a chat with Ryan Singer from Basecamp, and his method, the the, the shape-up method that he talks about, is almost diametrically opposed to what you're talking about. But what I I love about this is in both cases, it's really considered uh, and you've thought about what works for you and you've gone through experiments and found a way that that makes it work. So one of the things he talks about is kind of junking backlogs entirely and doing something much more informal and coming to a betting table on a regular basis. And if it's not important enough to make it to the betting table on any given time, how important is it really? But you're talking about lots of submissions and roadmaps and backlogs and a more formal and traditional process. I guess the question that I'm trying to get to is how long is your backlog? Do you have a, a, do you just cut (laughs) it at a a certain point and say, right, anything below this isn't important. It's been sitting here for, uh, you've talked about time as a, as one of your considerations, but how do you do your grooming and make sure that this is not an untamable beast? Totally. So when I joined the team, our backlog had around a thousand things in the icebox. I'm not kidding. Like so many things. There were things that were there from like six years ago. And I was like, I don't even know who this person is. They clearly don't work here anymore. Like I I have no idea. Like how am I supposed to know like what this means? And um, at the time I decided to actually do my due diligence as a product manager and learn the product through all of those requests. So I told our directors and I told our engineers, like, we never spend time cleaning this up. This is time to do Mary Kondo work. Whatever doesn't bring us joy anymore, we're going to delete. And that's <laughs> the way we're going to do it. And I joked that I became kind of like Mary Kondo for my team because that's all I did for like a few weeks. And it was really hard. It, it was like really, really tough because there were a lot of things that like there were knowledge gaps. There were things that only certain people in the company knew and we needed to reach them. So we first did a blind delete. Anything that was over three years old, we just deleted. And we were like, if this has not come up again, probably not that important. If it is important, it's going to come up again. So we didn't feel terrible. We're like, this is fine. There were still like about 600 things for us to figure out. Uh, (laughs) It was was hard. Um, So we actually cleaned our backlog for two hours every day for about a couple of weeks. That's pretty impressive. I think I would have um, deleted everything that was older than a week. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) So so where are you now? How many how how many items long is it? How do you keep it clean? And do, do you have an, something that seemed important to you a month ago? And but it just wasn't quite high enough priority, but you were still excited about is that still on there somewhere? Or is that just waiting to be uh, bumped up if it comes back? Yeah, so I'm very happy to report we are under 50 right now on the icebox. And these are like things that we are actively going to be working on within the next two months from the engineering side. Um, I'm very, I I have very little opinions that are like really strongly held. Um, I like the idea of having strong opinions loosely held, but one of my opinions is that if it's in the backlog, it's going to get done. 
If it's an idea, it's not in the backlog. So this entire idea submission form is completely outside of our backlog. And it only makes it to the backlog if it's been prioritized high enough that we decide to do it within the next month or two months. Which is different from some backlogs, I'm sure, where actually <laughs> the backlog contains all of the ideas as well. Yeah, I, I, I think that's terrible. Personally. <laughs> I, I don't know how these people live, you know, like I was just so anxious. I feel like, oh, my God, it feels like we're not never going to be done or we're not doing anything. And then it also becomes this like organization like nightmare of figuring out, like, how do we even prioritize? There are 300 things here. How do we even talk about the most important stuff or not? So we have like release markers and we have like these are the stories we're writing right now. These are the bugs we're going to do. And then we have engineering chores and that's it. It's like a TV show about hoarders. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. So I would say like, I, I love the idea of being able to get ideas from people. And I think anyone that's on the B2B side needs to have a clear process for how to get feedback. And anyone on the B2C side should leverage their users because they're great and they're like clearly using your product and they see stuff that you don't get to see. So I think it's super important, but it doesn't belong in the backlog. It's somewhere else. And so people might be like, well, that's two things to manage. I'm like, yeah, well, too bad. Like you need to manage two things. I'm sorry. Like when is for the ideas and when is for your, what you're actually going to do. So once you have this process in place, um, mm -hmm. I think I might have asked this already, but do you ever find yourself needing to say no or is it just take a look at, you know, the picture that we have in terms of um, the prioritization and the transparency of how everything is ordered um, and why we're saying no to things? Oh, I guess you are saying no to things, but you just write on the feature request that why you've said no. Yeah, we yeah, we write it exactly. There's a status and we say we will not implement and we explain why. Um, we've never had anyone be like, this is a terrible decision or I hate this, which is great. <laughs> I was very worried in the beginning that we would start saying no to people and they would be like, oh, no, I hate this. It's terrible. Or like, you're not listening to me. Um, because what I think the, the framework ensured was that we were hearing people and we were making sure that they felt heard and that we tried to understand what they were asking for. And then we were deliberating if we were actually going to do it or not. Um, another thing that is great is that if there are requests that we will not do, and they're public. If other people want the same things, they will see that there before they submit the request. Um, so I actually think that we've experienced a decline in the number of requests. Um, it also forced our team to rethink about what's important to us. And we put together a strategy doc that has core phrases of things that we will do and things that we will not do. And those are explicit in the feature request form. So we're kind of giving people a guideline of things that we will solve for and things that we will not solve for. And do you have any um, issues with the process now or areas where you feel it could be improved still? I think like the idea of like, people that are not product managers submitting requests as product managers still needs work. And it, it's a hard thing to ask people to do because it's different from what their day job entails. Um, but people don't, don't seem to have a problem with that. I think it's just like, it's still time consuming, right? It's, it's not something that will solve all of your problems. It will organize your problems and will make them simpler, uh, but it won't solve everything.
Awesome. Gabriella, you've mentioned you spent all day making decisions and granted you've put in frameworks to help uh, make that easier, but you yeah. gave a great technique about reducing some of the stress in your life uh, <laughs> and making sure that uh, you've outsourced some decision making. Yes, I, I do have even frameworks for that. It's great. <laughs> it works perfectly. <laughs> Um, a lot of the times, like, yeah, at the end of the day, I just made so many decisions and I get home and like, I need to decide what I'm going to eat or where I'm going to go and everything. And my suggestion for that and what works for me is I just surround myself with people that I really trust that are really awesome. <laughs> and I tell them to decide for me <laughs> and that works pretty well. <laughs> I also am a big fan of prefix menus that <laughs> I don't to pick anything from. So yeah, surround yourself with great people that don't make decisions all day is normally really helpful. Awesome. Gabrielle, it's been so nice having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was super fun. Hey, Lily, what's the difference between a product manager and a toddler? Um, exactly where are we going with this? Well, you know, both say no a lot. And in neither case do the people they're talking to really want to hear it. It's a good thing toddlers are cute then. And it's a good thing we learned some techniques from Gabrielle on how to deal with stakeholders on this, because I'm pretty sure that approach is not going to work for me. What do we got going on next week? If all goes according to plan, we have Daniel Alizalde teaching us about how to manage IoT products. Well, I wouldn't say no to that. The product experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Our hosts are me, that's Lily Smith, and Randy Silva. Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Emily is ours alone, but we're happy to share Luke if you need someone to edit your own podcast. Hey, you can't share him too much. He's my husband. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg and plays bass in the band for letting us use the music. And sign up for your local Product Tank, a regular meetup in over 185 cities worldwide. There's probably one someone near you. And if there's not, you can start one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com slash product tank. Here's Global Coordinator Mark Abraham to tell you more about it. Product Tank is a global community of meetups in over 155 cities across the world, driven by and for product managers. Whether you have a group discussion or you're listening to speakers, the whole idea is to create a safe environment for product people to come together and to share their learnings and tips. Mm -hmm.